And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Thanks for taking the time to listen to us today. This, the Zonal Marking Podcast, Euros Notebook, episode two of eight. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me, Michael Cox and Tom Warville of The Athletic. They're going to be chatting through some thoughts and themes from the last few days of the European Championships. And Michael, just under a week since we last spoke, another round of matches in the can. Uh, and enthusiasm for this tournament remains pretty high, I think. Some of your tweets about the tournament this week, um, relative to your usual online persona, positively giddy about things. It's nice of you to say, I think, Ali. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was a little bit fearful about the tournament because of the fact everyone's very tired after the domestic campaign, because of the, the lack of fans in stadiums. I know they're you know half full, but it's still only half full. But I think it's been pretty good. I mean, I think the quality of football's been decent. I've been surprised at how high teams are pressing and trying to win the ball back quickly and making games of relatively high tempo. So yeah, I, I think there's every reason to be positive about the tournament. There's always a discussion about a potential expansion to 32 teams letting in eight rubbish sides would sort of sully the quality of the tournament. But if you subscribe to the notion that a tournament is only as good as its worst teams, I sort of think those, the, the minnows in inverted commas, have, have performed quite well and generally played with some attacking intent as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think anyone's been outclassed. I mean, a couple of the bigger sides have been disappointing. Turkey, the most obvious ones. But yeah, I mean, North Macedonia qualified in slightly bizarre circumstances, but put up a decent fight. Finland have won a game. Um, who else was ranked lowly? Scotland came in through the back door of the, the Nations League and, and held England to a point. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of the third-place teams going through. And I think on balance, I'd probably prefer 32 teams and a proper structure rather than 24 teams in this slightly awkward group stage. Just lastly, on the format, I don't want to keep banging on about it, but I, I, I'm just interested to know, Michael, do you think your enthusiasm might waver or take a bit of a hit this week in match day three um, due to the format sort of taking away some of the, the normal match day three drama from proceedings? I mean, even in the first evening of match day three matches, you've now got the scenario where there's a Switzerland side who have finished their group matches but won't know for a few days whether they'll continue playing in this tournament or not. Yeah. Yeah, I think that does make it slightly farcical and it also means that the sides in Group E and Group F often have to know or they're aware of, of what result they need which I think seems a little bit unfair so yeah I, I, I do have my issues with the format but like I say with that in mind I think the quality overall has been pretty good and uh, yeah I'm not going to complain I've, I've enjoyed this a lot more than the domestic campaign behind closed doors. I just think having supporters in every ground has made a real difference. Now, Tom, your online persona is much more consistent, never wavers, cheeky, irreverent, intelligent, all of that on show on Twitter this week as the games have gone on. How are you enjoying an analysing tournament football compared to the Premier League spin cycle? I think I'm finding it a lot harder, really, just because 
you know, when you get past five games in the Premier League, you start to see trends and you start to get reliable numbers on how certain players or teams are, are lining up and doing things. And I think with tournament football, the strategies can vary so much or games can change so much because of goals. Um, it's hard to get a real, you know, handle on how those things are, are going. And I guess also from a professional perspective, like I wasn't really doing the work I'm doing now during the last World Cup. I very much wasn't kind of like looking at the stats after every game. I wasn't needing to do Twitter spaces or, uh, you know, look at the, try and find the trends of the tournament. Um, and so this is probably like something that's fairly new to me in picking up, okay, how do you analyse tournament football as I go? So it's been a, a been a bit of a, a learning curve, but I'm, an, I'm enjoying it. And uh, yeah, I guess also enjoying the fact that the fans are back and there's more atmosphere and I think the games are easier to watch probably than than some of the, the Premier League games at times because of the impact that, that the crowd has even if that's just a, an anecdotal thing and not something that we're seeing backed up in the stats just yet. Are you both been putting out some really good content on the athletic site. I guess if you're suggesting Tom that you're something of a tournament debutant uh, I'd say you're more Finland on three points than North Macedonia on zero points uh, at the moment so congrats on that. Uh, let's open the notebook though Michael we'll start with you and you'd like to start with the team who are top of the Euros power rankings I think it's fair to say and the manager of course top of of the fashion rankings as well for for those who find that sort of thing important yeah i won't be commenting too much on the uh, fashion side of things you'll be pleased to hear yeah i mean i think italy been the most impressive side so far but i'd like to say something about their style because mancini's getting a lot of credit for the style they're playing with italy and they've been very good they've been very attack-minded but i think there's two points here i'd like to make one italy haven't really been playing that old school defensive football over the last 10 years they have at times but you think of the side under prandelli they got to the final of Euro 2012. That was a fantastic side with a brilliant midfield. He tried to pack the side with playmakers. And I think they played probably more proactive football, more possession-based football than they are at the moment. And the second thing to say is the style of football is primarily determined by the players at the manager's disposal. You know, in international football, you can't just say, well, I want to bring in a certain type of player. And Italy have started to produce a different type of midfielder. And, and that is evident by the fact they have Jorginho and Verratti in the side. Mancini, over the course of his career, has generally been considered quite a defensive manager, particularly at Manchester City. And I think I would liken it to Spain under Luis Aragones, when Aragones was considered basically the Spanish Tony Pulis for 30 years in football. And then had a group of Xavi and Iniesta and Xavi Alonso and Fabregas. David Silva so obviously played more proactive football. And I think that's what we're seeing with Italy here. And that's not to say they shouldn't be praised. And I think Mancini has organised the side well. But I'm a little bit sceptical of this idea that Mancini himself is the reason for Italy playing more positive football. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion about Italy not looking like classic former Italy sides at major tournaments. And I think a lot of listeners will instinctively know what that means, but some might not. So just as I have you here and, and this is your platform and I'd like to use it, could you just put into words how this change in style manifests itself? Is it more proactive moving the ball a bit quicker? Is it to do with the defensive line? Like, What does it look like to you? It's a good question. I think first and foremost, like I say, the midfielders are very much ball players. They're very positive. I think traditionally, with some exceptions, Italian central midfielders would be kind of functional players. They do a job. They'd be about supporting the number 10. That's not really how Italy play. They aren't based around a number 10. They're based around lots of the central midfielders being good on the ball. Um, and they've also focused on just putting or pushing lots of players into attacking positions. They've effectively played with the front five in, in possession with the left back. Spinazzola playing very, very high on the left. 
me and Tom did an article that featured um, a lot about him because I think he's been really interesting in his role. The fact he's right-footed and playing such an attacking role on the left is, is pretty rare as well. And yeah, the defensive line is 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 higher as well. James Horncastle's done a, an article on that. They are playing closer to the halfway line. They're not dropping off into their own box. So it is a more proactive, positive side. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And yeah, like I say, I think they have been the most impressive side so far. Well, it's been a, a dream group stage for them. And nice little wrinkle is that they've used all 23 of their outfield players uh, already in the tournament. Castrovilli only for four minutes. But even so, it, it's uh, it's quite impressive that. And of course, 25 of their 26 players in total because Sirigu was brought off the bench uh, in the 89th minute to come on for essentially for injury time in that third game against Wales. Where do you stand on this sort of quirky behaviour from Mancini? Uh, I quite like it personally. It's nice to give everyone a run out. Obviously with 26 players, it's particularly difficult these days. So yeah, I have got some good historical stats somewhere on the number of times three goalkeepers have been used at tournament. It's very, very rare. It tends to only happen when a manager is doing this and just giving everyone a run out. I think Portugal at Euro 2000 used all three goalkeepers so sometimes it can slightly distort those stats but uh, otherwise I think it's great fun you're good to do you're good to use two keepers Mancini but do not distort Michael Cox's third goalkeeper major tournament stats please that's all we ask um there's no there's no third place playoff which is good because that can often be a little bit prone to uh giving a goalkeeper an undeserved run out, I must say. <laughs> Tom, in the same group, one of the main narratives has been sort of pointing and laughing at anyone who had the temerities to suggest that Turkey might be dark horses or anyone who might have even written in their previews that this Turkey side, and I quote, fall perfectly into the category of dark horses. We're going to give Michael a right to reply in a second, but naught points in their three group games. Now that alone might not tell the whole story. Uh, in this case, it certainly does. They've been abject. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've been really poor at the back and that's that's been the main reason for finishing on zero points and having only scored a, a single goal I think as well there's a lot to look into in terms of the the way they've attacked and the style of attack because there's enough talent there individually in the likes of Channel Oglu and, and Undare and I think Yukoshlu we've spoken about on this podcast several times and even Yilmaz at the front as well and I just think as a collective it's just it's really not worked we've seen them concede 62 shots in the groups which averaging what just shy of 21 shots a game won't be topped this tournament and probably as I'd posit not been topped ever that's like a lot a lot of shots so yeah it's been it's been fairly poor and also we've not actually seen all of the kids feature all that much I mean they had the the youngest squad of all coming into this tournament and we've seen guys like Kochu who plays the final has got the old substitute run out I thought Kabak could play a role at this tournament not featured at all so that's been a, a bit of a shame that we've kind of seen them crash out and we've not seen all the the youngsters on show yeah it's been it's been pretty poor the biggest standout number for me is Barak Yilmaz who had a fantastic season with with Lille scored far more than you'd expect based on his, his XG and his goal numbers and then comes into this tournament and I think he's got the most XG of any player without scoring so far so it just shows you how how fickle the finishing gods can be at times. Michael do you feel a bit shot at when you see those tweets laughing at anyone who labelled Turkey dark horses? No I mean I, I said in the preview that in terms of the historical reputation they're very most dark horses because they tend to either not qualify or get to the semi-finals or they have over the last 20 years but no I, I've been I've been surprised by how bad they've been going forward but 
anyone who listened to the uh, Totally Football show previews will have found me pointing out that the defensive record over last year is really bad. It was a difficult one to preview because in qualification, they had the best defensive record in the tournament. Uh, sorry, in, in the qualification process. They only conceded three goals. I think all of them were from set pieces. And then over the last year, they completely flipped and conceded lots of goals and they seemed to continue that into the tournament. So... I kind of expected them to concede a few, but I must say I thought they'd be better going forward. And, and yeah, Burt Yilmaz was my, um, yeah, unashamedly, he was my tip, outside tip for the golden boot. And that did not pay off because he had a fantastic season in Liga. But uh, yeah, they've been just massively unpredictable over the, over the course of the last 20 years. But uh, they've probably been the only side so far, we can say, have been a massive disappointment. I wonder what the fallout will be or, or is currently in, in Turkey and in Turkish football. And it would be a bit of a shame, really, if Şenol Güneş's legacy from that amazing 2002 World Cup uh, is somewhat impacted by this, but I, I imagine it will be. Uh, Michael, yourself and Tom wrote a cracking piece uh, on site on a sort of tactical slash personnel theme that's stood out to you over the first few weeks of the tournament, and that is wrong-footed fullbacks. Yeah, particularly on the left. And... Um... Yeah, Tom was Tom was writing something about it in general. I was writing something in particular about Spinazzola, who I think has been really interesting, as I say. And they we kind of merged the two articles in the end. It's interesting because I think when we when we talk about tactical trends, there's almost automatically an implication that it is a tactic, it's a deliberate approach. Teams are trying to do something with it. I think this has really just been about the fact that not many sides have a good left-footed fullback. And when you look at the the elite left backs across European club football. They're not very evenly distributed across countries. I mean, England have a couple of really good ones. Scotland have a couple of really good ones. There's a few that obviously aren't European and aren't at the tournament. France have a couple of good ones. And you end up with situations like for Italy, for example, or Denmark or Belgium have been doing it as well, where the best approach is to play a right footer there. Um, And so Tom did a very good article looking at precisely how they're playing. The Athletic dot com forward slash zonal marking if you're not a subscriber but you'd like to be the current offer of course is is that you'll just pay one pound a month for the first six months of your annual subscription so do get on that and read that piece uh, among so many other good bits and bobs on site at the moment and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free hey frank a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct tv what's little birdie was it jimmy the sparrow it's a figure of speech point is you can stream direct tv over the internet now oh sure next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people right <laughs> you mean airplanes stream direct tv without a satellite dish call 1-800-DIRECT-TV terms or restrictions apply Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Tom, one thing you've been keeping an eye on is is how teams look to create chances and more specifically teams that either look to spread um, those who are, who are sort of creating chances for them and go for a, a diverse approach and on the other side, those who are heavily reliant on one specific creator. Yeah, one thing I've 
I've mainly been looking at is how much of a team's certain stat does a player contribute to. So obviously we can't really use per 90 stats because the sample is too small. You still don't really want to use totals either um, because if some guys have played more games than others at this point or players have played more minutes. So I found that as kind of a nice in-between that's not exactly perfect but still shows some interesting trends nonetheless. And we've seen mainly for most teams it tells quite a good story of just like you either have a central creator who's key to everything they do and these are sides which are more possession dominant and therefore reliant on kind of one player to pull the strings and create those chances or it's the other teams who have less possession they have kind of a single outlet or a a, a more reliable outlet that they use when attacking from deeper on the counter um, to create their chances so we've seen so far I mean Kevin De Bruyne has only played at the time of recording 45 minutes I think so it's obviously just a quarter of all all of Belgium's games and yet he's created 40% of all of their chances which I think is four of ten <laughs> um, but just shows you how kind of you know the impact of him and that one half in the second game in their group was just monumental. I think he created or was involved in assisting the the tap-in. I think it was for, for Mertens, I might be wrong. Um, and then obviously scored a goal himself after a, a great move which involved Lukaku. But I think that will be something which he'll no doubt boost when they, they play later. And yeah, it just shows you that he is still a very good footballer. Away from them, I think Griezmann is a really interesting one. He's played all the minutes of France, but he's been relied on for about 38% of France's chances, which is the most of any other player. And looking down the list, I think you've got to go pretty long way down to find the next player, which is Mbappe. So again, he, in that kind of like second striker, uh, number 10 role, he, he plays at times for the national team. He says here that he's actually a right winger, but I don't think that's quite the case. Um, but he's been really important to them, both creating in, in open play from set plays. And then others, I mean, Robertson's up there for, for Scotland, Malinowski, Daniel James, uh, Emil Forsberg. These are all guys who, I'd say for, on the most part, don't see too much of the ball, apart from maybe Malinowski. You've obviously got some wingers there who are crossing or, or running from deep. And Malinowski, I think, is a very, very good attacking playmaker who we profiled in uh, in the radar and I think he's he's played pretty well for Ukraine so far in the tournament too. M- Michael picking up the notebook idea and running with it I like the idea of you sitting watching these games with a notepad open and just jotting down your thoughts and things that, that come to come to mind things that you notice see if see if there's an article in it by the end of the 90 uh, and the Germany-Portugal game well, it, it was fairly bonkers but in this hypothetical world that I've built your notepad starts with the note go free at the back post for Germany and then the next line says Gosen's free again at the back post for Germany and then it's just that just getting slowly bigger more and more underlined capital letters Portugal just got goosed time and time again by the German left wing back the image I have in my head is like the Bart Simpson writing on the yeah. chalkboard <laughs> Gosen's free at the back post yeah pretty much like that I mean it was one where I, I felt compelled to start the article saying Look, I know it's really obvious what happened, but it's still worth highlighting. Someone, someone on Twitter responded saying, who in earth needs to read this? It was so obvious that he was free at the back post. But it's like, you can't not do an article just because the tactics had such an obvious impact on the result. That would be completely counterproductive. But yeah, I can't remember the last time I saw a game that was so obviously decided by one tactical feature. And I was amazed that Portugal was so, so vulnerable to that move because it wasn't a surprise. I mean, Germany were playing the same... Uh, system is in the first game, the same starting 11 is in the first game. They must have known that, that Gossens and to a certain extent Kimmich on the other side were going to be free for switches, but they didn't have a solution. I mean, um, Santos, his 
At the start of the game, it felt like they were going to drop back into a back six, which is one approach for dealing with it. But the wingers didn't seem comfortable. And, and Santos, he tried three different players in that role. He started with Bernardo Silva, then he moved to um, Renato Sanchez, and then he moved uh, midway through the second half to Rafa Silva, all in this kind of right wing position, having to track Gosselin's back. But it wasn't about the individual, it was about the system. And I was surprised to see such an experienced manager who's won two tournaments, obviously the Euros five years ago and the Nations League two years ago, uh, just be so completely tactically outwitted by the approach we all could have predicted. Mm. Yeah, it was strange, wasn't it? It was good to watch, though. I must say, impressive attacking performance from the Germans, which was much needed after their first game against France and sets that Group F up deliciously for the third and final match in that group coming up in a, a few nights' time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Tom, I think all three of us agree that the proliferation of data and data analysis in wider football consciousness is a good thing, particularly uh, the expected goals metric in general, a good thing. But when used incorrectly, it can cause some some problems and it can cloud judgments, I think. I know that this has been a bit of a bugbear of yours this week. Yeah, I don't know if bugbear's a strong term for it. It's definitely something I've I've noticed and I've just thought that I've seen them around on, on Twitter and various places and do think that at times the XG map doesn't kind of tell you or it's not even the map at times, it's just the overall like score of the you know, the XG score line doesn't always tell the full story because I haven't got any real data to back this up, but I just feel that the impact of goals are changing how teams approach games and look to play. And, and I guess the impact of game state is really impacting how teams look to, to attack and to, and to defend and how they look to approach the game. And I just think that it's really important context that at times winning the XG scoreline doesn't actually mean you're the better team. Um, and the impact of goals has been far far higher than usually than perhaps in, in, in domestic and league football. The one example that I kind of flagged was uh, Spain against Poland. And I think the XG scoreline was fairly level. Lewandowski scored the equaliser. And then from there, Poland just didn't create anything else for about 30 minutes, I think it was. So from that, the overall XG score, you think, oh, Spain have been lucky again, which I think they were. They had a lot of chances and they, they've obviously not been firing at all cylinders from up front. But Poland's reaction to scoring is really important in understanding how the game actually played out and why there's a bit more, a bit more context in just that um, that single stat. How realistic do you think that, you know, having uh, to a large extent got past just looking at the shot count, 
to to judge, you know, quickly judge who has dominated games and moving towards looking at the quality of chances, even understanding that, you know, own goals and balls across the box that just don't quite catch the the toe of an attacking player don't show up in an, in an expected goals timeline. How realistic is it that we can get to the next step of really, you know, of all of us trying to apply game state um, when looking back at games as well? That feels like another leap to me for the for the wider for the wider sort of football public yeah i think it's it's probably i think the next step is like i don't think xg is the number for that i think it's some understanding of the value of possession or the value of the territory or something like that or some some measure of domination field tilt you've spoken about before yeah i think that and i think this idea of the timeline is really important and really interesting because you do see the flow of the game and uh, I mean, Michael and I did a Twitter space the other day. Michael mentioned how a game was split up into quarters. And I think that's a nice way that you can at times visualise the dominance of certain teams in matches and how it flows out between them. So I don't think it's a, a fault with XG. I think it's probably more a fault with you know the, the presentation of that data uh, and just being able to summarise a game to a single aggregate figure doesn't will never tell you the full story um so i think sometimes more is actually a case of uh, of better michael you've been on england duty for the athletic writing uh, pieces not long after each of their games so far your piece on england nil scotland nil focused on the three lines failure to break down what was a, an impressive and resolute scotland defensive performance but your feeling was england just lacking ambition very specifically down the sides yeah, I've been surprised by that. It's been an obvious feature in both games. I think against Croatia, the fullbacks were very deep. Um, I assume that was because Southgate was scared by the counter-attacking threat of the Croatian wingers. But against Scotland, I was very surprised. I mean, Scotland were using a 3-5-2. The obvious approach in that situation is if you push on your, your attacking fullbacks. And of course, there were different fullbacks to the first game as well, more attack-minded fullbacks. I mean, if you push them on, you can create overloads. You can create two versus one situations out wide and get crosses into the box. But they didn't do that at all. They played, the two fullbacks played three crosses between them over the course of 90 minutes. You compare that to Andy Robertson and he played 11 crosses. Now, I know Robertson was a wing back, but he was also playing in the side that was more defensive, had less possession, was sitting back a bit more. So it's clearly a very deliberate approach from Southgate. I think one thing it explains is why he wasn't particularly keen on Alexander-Arnold, who ended up being injured anyway, but Southgate clearly wasn't desperate to take him to this tournament. And it kind of shows why, because... He wants his fullbacks to be cautious. He doesn't want them in crossing positions. So I can only assume that Southgate has looked at past successful international sides and thought actually they haven't really played overlapping fullbacks. You think of Germany in 2014. OK, they had Lahm on one side, but Howardes on the other side was very cautious. France in 2018, their fullbacks were kind of converted centre-backs as much as they were real overlappers. Even Spain in 2010, to an extent, I would say Capdevilla was not always on the overlap. Sergio Ramos was at right back, obviously became a centre-back later in his career. So maybe that's what he's thinking. But I was very surprised against Scotland. I thought they would push forward. And I think if they had to push forward, England would have created more chances. Just three crosses for those two fullbacks, given you know, given the amount of time that England had in possession in, in Scotland's half in periods, not for the whole game, uh, it's quite astonishing. I wonder if there's an almost like a sort of stubbornness from Southgate. He doesn't want to give Steve Clark what he wants. You know, we've spoken at length about how a lot of teams in modern football uh, want to flood central areas, make sure they're compact in those most dangerous of spaces and will kind of accept 
that the flip side of that is that they probably will allow lots of crosses into the box and therefore that the main objective is well if we can defend those crosses well we reckon that we'll have a good chance of keeping a clean sheet and and, and if that was a main part of Scotland's game plan I like the idea that Southgate's just steadfastly refusing to to cross the ball because that's what they want uh, but it didn't work at all and Tom what are the numbers saying about England so far yeah I think I think it all is connected where you've got the fullbacks who aren't looking to to vacate the space in behind them and essentially just actually be defenders, which they is you know primarily the job of a fullback in um, in football of old, really. And we see that I mean Italy have got the the best defence so far. They've not conceded a goal. Um, the they're averaging I mean it's a ridiculous. They're only conceding four shots a game so far, um, which is actually second to Denmark at the moment, um, who have averaged three point five in their two fixtures. Again, averages kind of pointless because they'll be skewed a lot by by what happens in games but I think you can read a little bit into them um, but for England you see that uh, their XG against uh, and across the two games been 0.5 on average which is the second best so I just think that Southgate is just really liking to have control and, uh, and try and control games and and restrict the opposition from having good quality chances having the numbers back to defend when you require them um, and just really you know we saw against Croatia kind of control the game and really against Scotland they probably created enough where they could have could have scored I don't think Scotland had too much and yeah I just think that that all comes down to the game plan that if we can just control the things we, we can control and look to you know stage an attack from the back and build it even if it's slowly like it was against Croatia or if, if it's a bit quicker like against Scotland I just think there's a lot of thinking that's gone into this and this was the plan all along and what we're seeing now isn't like them failing to execute I think this is probably all all in hand really Are you suggesting that England might not have been the best team in the tournament after beating Croatia 1-0 and also might not be the worst team we've ever seen having drawn 0-0 with Scotland Tom that's uh, that's alarming that yeah, I think I think that's a good rule of thumb for life, Ali, really, isn't it? Where, you know, you're not as good as everyone says you are and you're not as bad as everyone says you are. Never too high, never too low. Uh, let's finish with some players that you guys think are worth a note. Uh, you'll start, Tom, with the, the man that you're calling the young player of the tournament so far. Yeah, I don't think there's much of a debate about it, really. I mean, Alexander Izak, um, Alexander the Great so far, I think he's been a, a really interesting player to watch because he's just this hybrid of like a very tall kind of quite gangly striker which is something I feel I can relate to at times but unlike me he's a fantastic dribbler as well um, and it's not just like one player he'll take on he'll look to slalom plus plus two or three in a row um, something he really has to do for Sweden because he doesn't have a lot of support alongside him but I think we saw a, a couple of nice examples of that against Slovakia and then on the numbers front I mean he just is their attack in a nutshell he's had 38% of Sweden shots um, just over a third of their take-ons a third of their XG and two-thirds of their total expected assists that have come from him as well which I think is in the top 5% of all players at least across all those categories so he's kind of a, a one-man attack on a side that you know against Spain sat back from deep and, and against Slovakia tried to play a bit and they didn't really have a lot but I think that he's been the bright spark um, and you can see why I mean I, I've said before I think he's probably in that tier down slightly from from Haaland or at least the next name on that list uh, and I think he's really showing even with very few touches and, and a little support why he is so highly rated exciting exciting really exciting Michael when we previewed Austria before the tournament we couldn't really look past the Alaba in the room uh, more, more specifically like how do you get the biggest impact from your 
probably one world-class, extremely versatile star. How do you think Franco Foda has approached that so far? How do you think it's going? Yeah, I mean, in, in previous games, uh, in the March games, Foda played them all over the shop, really, three different positions. This tournament, I mean, particularly against the Netherlands, he played as the spare man in a back three. Uh, obviously, had a license to bring the ball forward, but I thought he looked really uncomfortable in that position, actually. I mean, he can play anywhere, can't he? They're playing kind of 3 5 2 he could play as the left side centre back. He could play holding midfield. He could play left centre midfield. He could play left wing back. But this position as the the spare man, I thought he was as as bad as I've seen him play. To be honest, I mean, I know it's difficult when you got a player who's so versatile. But I've been surprised by the indecision of Foda, really, and then the decision, the ultimate decision to play him in that position. I just don't think it's worked at all. Wow, they've got a huge game actually, not too long after we record this so the the Alaba Foda Austria narrative will be set I think um, by the end of today that's for sure but it's been interesting uh, that part of their game over the last two matches. Tom, finally Hungary pushed Portugal really close for 80 minutes of their opening group match and then they held favourites France to a draw doing fantastically well you have to say in this group of death Uh, which Hungarian player has stood out most for you? Um, I think it's probably Freiburg's Roland Salai, who um, shouldn't be confused with Adam Saloy or Attila Saloy, who are the uh, the ancient striker and young upstart left centre-back, respectively. But I thought he was just a very good one-man counter-attack at times against against France. And he's been responsible for, I mean, a lot of Hungary's attacking output, especially in the France game where I think they, they just looked to sit deep and counter and they did it quite effectively. I mean, he's in the, the top 5% of all players in terms of his contributions to um, to XG, to XA, to shots, to the times he was fouled, to the passes received in the final third. I think he's just been really important as the outlet. I am the, the I guess, the the head of recruitment uh, analysis for Zona Marking FC and he's someone who you think that if he can do that with so few touches and sitting from deep then what will he be like on a team where he gets a bit more possession and he's able to to have the ball more at his feet will he be able to actually sustain that level of, um, of output so yeah I've been really really impressed with him so he wasn't our pick for the the athletics radar which is our kind of scouting guide to the Euros that was um the previously mentioned Attila Saloy, who plays for Fenerbahce. But yeah, I think Roland's been been really impressive uh, to this kind of like counter-attacking wide forward. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing, hopefully, a bit more of him in the tournament if they don't make the, uh, the round of 16. Brilliant. Well, thank you guys for your time. You can close the notebooks now. Only a few hours until the next set of games get underway. So I'd suggest maybe going for a walk, do some stretches, make sure you stay hydrated. That goes for all of you listening as well. Thank you for joining us on the Zona Marking Euros notebook. We're going to be back in just a few days, actually, um, looking back at some, hopefully, fingers crossed, exciting uh, late group action and getting excited for the knock outs as well so we hope you're enjoying uh, our output during the euros we hope that you're subscribed to this podcast feed so that you can listen to them as soon as they come out and remember you can listen ad free on the athletic site and through the app as well so if you'd like to sign up to the athletic not just for that but also to read all of michael and tom's work and and so many of their talented colleagues as well then theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is the place to go otherwise enjoy these games we'll be back again in just a couple of days on the zonal marking podcast brought to you by the athletic the athletic 